You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. I mean, thank you for being curious about God, for dedicating time in your life to worship God here in this place. And also to those of you who are online who are joining us, I just want to thank you because it's no small thing to stop in your week and turn your attention to God and say, I'm here. So thank you. I'm very mindful in every sermon that I preach that I care about what is the so what. You know, what do I do with this? And you might wonder often as we go through a series like this of looking at the story of God, so what difference does it make in life? And today, I want to look at what difference it makes in one particular person's life. But first, I want you to think about you. Before I talk about someone else's story, how about you? Think about your life and all the experiences that you've had, and imagine that time, that season in your life, when you had the greatest change, the biggest transformation. So, I mean, if you're going into middle school, it might be that you went to middle school. But if you've had more experiences, just think about what that is. Was it a degree that you got? Was it a marriage that you entered into? A job that you started? Or was it a point when you went through a divorce? When you got fired? When your career was redirected? When you felt betrayed by a friend in your life? What is that moment in your life that season when you had the most change, the most transformation, and I want you to hang on to it. Now the story of this particular guy. A guy who was very devoted, but so devoted to God that he was a terrorist. He was willing to kill people because of what he believed. In fact, he was willing to specifically kill Christians. He wanted to see that they were imprisoned. Anyone that confessed Jesus, he wanted them in jail or executed. And he spent his life, devoted his life to seeing that take place. Now, he had his own change experience that would be like, I can't think of a perfect example, but Osama bin Laden becoming a Christian. And then Osama bin Laden becoming like the next Billy Graham. Think about that change, that transformation of one person's life, where he goes from chasing and catching and extraditing Christians to being one who is struck with lightning and sent into blindness. And he, and he hears this voice, why are you persecuting me? And in his blindness, he says the obvious question that we ask, I mean, do you ever get to those points in your life where someone comes and asks you a question and it changes you? It transforms you? So he gets asked this question, why are you persecuting me? And the obvious question that he's going to ask is, well, who are you? And the answer that comes clear as the lightning bolt that took his eyes away is, I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. I don't know, that might have been all that there was to the conversation. There really wouldn't need to be anything else for Saul, who turned to Paul, because he's struck by blindness. He has to be led into a place where he must think about what this new information means. 
the person he was trying to kill people because they followed, the person that he knew was not the Messiah, not the one from God, now has spoken directly to him. Folks, that's a radical and unimaginable shift. If, if you're looking for a transformation, I don't know that there's a more stunning one in all of Scripture, in all of Christian history, to see this radical of a transformation of one person's life. So devoted to God that they would kill to suddenly realize that the reason that they're killing people and the person that they're killing is actually a living, reigning king. Now, it's a strange tale, and I guess you could see why it shows up in Acts a lot. In Acts, you can read about Saul's conversion to Paul in Acts chapter 9, or Acts chapter 22, or Acts chapter 26, or you can read about it from Paul's own words, from Galatians 1, or 1 Corinthians 15. This is the most radical transformation in the New Testament, and he has kind of an interesting story. Paul has a great pedigree as a Jew and as a non-Jew. He grew up of parents of the Jewish dispersion, which means that as Alexander the Great did ethnic cleansing, dispersed Jews everywhere and said, no, you can't speak your language anymore, they were displaced to Tarsus on the southeast point of Turkey. And yet they're among those few Jews that hung on to their faith, that clung to that faith. And Paul had both a Hebrew name with Saul, and a Greek name, Paul. This group of people uh, allowed him, his parents, to have this amazing education where he trained under the rabbi Gamaliel, the grandson of Hillel, the one who started the Pharisees, the super-duper Christians, the set-apart ones, so sectarian, so devoted to the law, and yet so immersed in the law. Paul was on the God track. He was on the inside track until God shows up and flips all of that upside down. And the persecutor of Jesus becomes an advocator for Jesus. As Paul sits there in his blindness, he does a lot of reflecting. He's not able to read the Torah, but he knows it. He has it memorized anyway. And don't you know, the Holy Spirit was working on him to connect the dots to realize how this new information could be true, that Jesus is the Messiah. And in that darkness, he's sorting through all of these scriptures. Unfortunately, poor Ananias gets a call from God. Ananias is a Christian, and he's told to go and see Paul. And Ananias is like, no way. Don't you know who that person is? He killed people. He imprisoned people. In fact, I know many people who died at his hands. No, that's not what Ananias said. He goes. God tells him to go, and he goes, and he meets with Paul. And he heals Paul. And Paul has the Holy Spirit come upon him. And then Paul is baptized. And he begins to preach the very same message that the apostles preached, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Lord. And that the kingdom of God has arrived and is with us. It is among us. It is in us. And he meets with the disciples. He meets with the apostles. He even spends like three years in Arabia hiding. Because Jews now want to kill him because of his conversion. Christians are kind of looking at him through very cautious and very distant places. I mean, can you imagine if, we, if I were able to get someone like an Osama bin Laden to speak to us, 
and say, oh yeah, he's going to be just fine. And you might not feel very safe at all. And yet Paul has to overcome his own devotion by being one that is now committed and adhering to Jesus Christ. Well, he takes on a new term. He calls himself the adopted apostle, a term that, that shows up in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, I'm kind of one unnaturally born. I wasn't one of the 12. I'm actually the 14th apostle, if you're counting those numbers. And Paul is one who is given half of the New Testament. The guy didn't write a biography. He didn't write a book. Instead, he wrote letters. Letters to churches that he had started. Letters to churches that he needed to encourage. And one letter in particular that he wrote to a group that he had not started in the premier city of the ancient world in Rome. And in this particular letter, he begins to unpack what it looks like to follow Jesus. So here's what I want to do today. I really want to give you just two words, two prepositions. The preposition of and the preposition in. Do you think you can remember those two letter, two words? This is what we're working on today. First, we're going to start off with this story of God as a message for all people. And if you've got your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. A very familiar passage to, to Christians. Paul writes in verse 16 of chapter 1, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith and for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Paul in this passage talks about, as we unpack the story of Romans, that the righteousness of God has come. The righteousness of God has been revealed, and it's through the very faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Not to some small select group, but to everyone. To everyone who will call upon the name of Jesus. And in this section, we learn that the church that he wants to establish here is both Jew and Gentile. And it's a church that is intended to bring all of them together. And as Paul introduces himself and tries to eliminate the hostility of the church, let me picture for you, like I did in the fall when we looked at Romans, what that living room looked like. There's a north side church of the Jews and a south side church of the Gentiles. Imagine a circle in a living room. They're looking at one another crosswise, each thinking that one another is the problem. And Paul plays into this in chapter 1, and he begins to point the finger at the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and says, you guys don't have it together. Your lives are a mess. Sexually, they're a mess. In fact, the biggest problem with you Gentiles is that you worship idols. You don't worship the one true God. Just glance across the room at the north side church of the Jews who are smirking and thinking, finally, someone has spoken up to the elephant that's in the room that the Gentiles are the problem. And Paul says, yes, they are. And then he turns to the north side Jewish part of the church and he says, but you, whenever you judge others, you're no different. You're no different from them at all. 
Because it's not enough just to hear the Word of God. It's not enough to know the Word of God. In fact, it's not even enough just to do the Word of God. You need the righteousness of God to come upon you. Romans 3.10, there is no one who is righteous, not the north side or the south side, for we've all fallen short of the glory of God. At this point, it's kind of like that there's temperature control in the car, you know, where one side gets really hot and steamed up, and then the other side gets hot and steamed. They're both upset. They're both frustrated with Paul. Two things that you need to know about this story of God in Romans. One has to do with the law, and one has to do with the righteousness of God. Paul talks a lot about the law. Is it the Torah? Is it the gift of the Tanakh, the writings and the prophets and the Pentateuch? Is it the Mishnah, the oral interpretation of the law? Don't you know that Paul knew all of that? All of the commentary that explains the rules? Or what about the Talmud, written down later? Whenever Paul talks about the law, he points us to a very important point. And this is really true about a lot of laws. Laws show us not how to get right, but how those who live right live. A different way that I could say that, a lot of times we think about the law as prescribing what's right, what's in, what's out instead of the law describing what it is for people to live right. The law points us. It helps us know when we're not driving in our lane. It describes that right life. It's not just simply prescribing it. Let me say it one more way. A lot of times we think we go to the law to feel good about how well we followed it. Right? We could say that, yeah, I'm a law follower, and so we feel like it shows us our righteousness. All right, if I took just the rules of Albuquerque, just the laws of Albuquerque, and I followed you around today, would you even keep all of them in one day? The answer is no, you wouldn't. You would likely break one of the many rules, probably some that you don't even know. The law doesn't make you right. It's like a mirror that shows you what right looks like and how you might not be lined up properly. Do you get that point? That the law is not what saves you, it's God that saves you. All right, well, that's a part of the story you need to get. The law is not just prescriptive, it describes what this life looks like. The second one pulls it all together, and maybe it's the most important. The righteousness of God may not be an exciting title, but this righteousness of God is about the righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of you or me, but the righteousness of God that is given to us as a gift. And that gift comes to us through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. To me, that's amazing. That this righteousness comes to us as a gift because of God's faithfulness to us. Calling us, as Paul does in Romans 1.6, to all, Jew and Gentile, religious and irreligious, to all belong together in Christ. All right. The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus. My first preposition was of. You got that? So with Romans, the word is of. I'd like you to turn to another passage in Romans. Just a few pages over. Romans 3, 
starting in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed. And as attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through the faith of, and you might need to highlight in your Bible, it might say in, through the righteousness of Jesus Christ for all who believed. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The proper translation is the faith of Jesus Christ. Now you can go back and listen to the Romans series. I'm not getting into the weeds on that today. But it models how Paul uses that phrase throughout the letter. It's very important because we are putting our trust in the faithfulness of Jesus. We're putting our faith, our belief, our trust in what Jesus has done. That's a very, very important distinction. And what's our preposition again? Of, right? Good. Get a little slow there. First service who came early, you know, with the whole springing forward, did a little quicker, but nice job. Story of Romans. The righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ. Second story, a shorter one, tiny book, the little letter of Ephesians. In this letter, Paul tells us about the mystery, the secret, secret to the universe, what holds everything together. And that secret is Jesus Christ. That yes, there's a cosmic battle going on between good and evil, but Jesus is the secret, the mystery that's been revealed. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, or Ephesians 1, verse 11, we see what God's plan is for the entire universe. It's to gather up everything that we can see on earth and everything in heaven in Christ. Oh, there we are for my second preposition. You know, all you have to know is two words today for this sermon, of and in, and we're now to in. The answer to the universe is life that's lived in Christ. That's our destiny. That's what our purpose is. Every gender, every race. And let me say it a little more simply and maybe a little more helpfully. What does it mean to live your life in Christ? If that's so important, Brady, what does that look like? Well, here's how it sometimes looks. Sometimes we think about Jesus as an object. That we put our, our faith in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is an object of our confession. And that's important, right? This is where you nod. Yes, that's right. We put our faith in Jesus. Yes. Jesus is not just an object of our faith. Jesus, and to be in Christ, also means you're in the realm of Jesus. Jesus is the environment in which you live. Like a goldfish in water, you are surrounded by this environment of Jesus Christ. That's a big difference. Because if we just treat Jesus as an object, oh yeah, I believe in Him, I've confessed in Him, that's only one part of this. There's also the in part, the dwelling in the environment of Jesus. It looks like this. It's a difference between simply saying, I believe, or I trust, or I have faith, and training. Training for what that life looks like to live inside of Jesus. So yes, it's trust, 
but it's also training. The two come together. And in this beautiful story of Ephesians, we hear some amazing things. In chapter 2, there's just a few verses that you could look at, maybe on your own time. In those first few verses of chapter 2, where Paul says, you were dead. You were trying to live life your own way, to go where you wanted to go, to buy what you wanted to buy, to drink what you wanted to drink, do what you wanted to do, do who you wanted to do. And yet, life doesn't come together. In fact, it's like a corpse. You're dead. But God made you alive. God breathed spiritual life, physical life into you, pulling you from the grave. One who knows you. One who made you within your mother's womb. And one who God looks at in 2.7 and says, you're my masterpiece. I'm delighted in you. Now, I don't know why God would look at, at me or you and think, oh, my masterpiece. I looked up and looked in the mirror today and I'm like, nope, no masterpiece here. And yet, that's what God does. He takes us as corpses. He makes us alive and he looks at us and he says, you're my masterpiece. You're saved by my grace. You're chosen to belong, to be a part of this group of people. Well, deep breath, right? That's a lot, Brady. I know. I checked out, Brady. I didn't get it. Well, did you get the two prepositions? In and of? I think there's a whole lot we can learn. A whole lot we can learn from a terrorist who becomes a Christian and becomes an evangelist. It changed the face of the globe. This one Paul shows us that God can change anyone any one of us, and that God's not through with any of us. So, Paul is an example. Second, from Romans, we learn that God saves all people of faith. That the righteousness of God is a gift because of the faithfulness of Jesus. There's that preposition, right? What is that one? Oh, that's good. Yeah, you got it. You got that word. And third, with Ephesians, that God's secret is out. The mystery to the universe is ours. That Jesus Christ pulls us all together. He gives us life, enabling us to believe in Him. Enabling us, even better, to live in Him. Not just as an object of faith, but a realm of our existence. Now, here at First Christian, we know about this. This is who we are. Our mission statement is not a collection of words. It's an identity. We follow Jesus. That means that we are people who are wanting to live in this reign of God. So when you go to a group, when you come to church, when you're part of a ministry, when you go to Lenten dinners, you will find a group of people who are following Jesus. That's what we're about. In fact, this becomes just a basic template for us for how we live our life. How we make a decision of how we're going to spend our money at First Christian. How we make a decision about what ministries to do or to not do. And it's even the kind of thing where leaders look in the mirror and say, is this ministry helping other people follow Jesus? You see, what we're trying to do is create an environment where in children's ministry, in youth ministry, among adults in our groups, people naturally and easily become followers of Jesus. 
Like they almost don't even realize it. It's just the natural next step. You just follow Jesus. It's not an intimidating mission. Whether you've been a Christian for your entire life or you're just thinking about being a Christian or you want no part of it, maybe like Paul, right? It is a mission that invites you into this journey of following Jesus. And it looks like this. You start out your day being with Jesus. Going into that meeting, going into that classroom, going into that relationship that you're not so comfortable with, being, not alone, but with Jesus. And in that situation, you do what Jesus did. You think about the way Jesus acted in this world, the sacrifice that he gave, the ways that he healed and served people, and you think, how can I do what Jesus did? And then, if you need to speak up, then by all means, don't feel like you need to. Until it's that time, you say the things Jesus said. You talk about the arrival of the kingdom of God, that people can live in this realm of Jesus. And then, when it's time to walk away from that meeting or leave that person, you go. You go to the next place where Jesus is leading you. Because he is always calling us forward. He's always calling us into new territory. Into places where people have scales on their eyes and can't see that the kingdom of God is all around us. Verse Christian, it's an exciting place to be. It's very exciting. Because we're people who are doing the simple thing, following Jesus. And letting it take over everything about who we are. Would you join with me in prayer? God, we surrender ourselves to you. We recognize that we're, we're dead, but that you've made us alive. We recognize that, that you see in us what we often don't see in us, that we're your masterpiece, that you have pulled us together as a group of people who together embody the diversity of the kingdom of God. And so, God, we ask that you will strengthen us and help us in our journey of following Jesus. That we will be more committed to understand that the righteousness of God has come to us. That the faithfulness of Jesus makes this possible. So that we can not just be of Christ, but living in Christ. Living in that realm. Father, we pray that you take our weakness and you make it yours. That you make it whole. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.